Welcome to From Scarce to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. And yeah, you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and a Facebook, which are at From Scarce to Scrubs and our Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. You can also check out our website for more information on our episode, show notes, our sources, and more at scrubs.com. Absolutely. And you can also subscribe to our podcast, leave a rating and review. And Apple Podcasts is a really great place to do that. Spotify is really helpful. Wherever you can, we appreciate it. All the places. Yeah. And welcome back to episode 37. I hope you are all having an amazing week and are ready for a fun and much-awaited episode. Because this week, we are talking about the wandering womb. And if you are an avid listener, then you know I've been wanting to talk about this for ages. But if you're new here, then of course, welcome. This episode is everything we've dreamed this podcast to be. It's history, it's medicine, it's feminism, it's the perfect point of all three of them. So I am super excited for it. But before we get into it, Alicia, what do you know about the wandering womb? You know, I actually don't know that much. I know that the concept is that like the the uterus or the womb moves around within the body, but I don't know Mm -hmm. where it goes. I don't know why it's traveling. I think you told me once in another episode, I forgot. (laughs) So this is going to be my, my reminder. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's get into it then. Let's just do it. simply the wandering womb is truly the womb wandering about the body but we all know you can't use the word and the definition of a word so let's dive into it a bit more so I want to structure this episode in kind of the way that I study for med school like in my clinical years um, as I focus on like learning diseases and syndromes and things so I always try to remember one why does this happen like the pathophysiology of this disease. So like, what is going wrong in the body Two, like, who is it affecting? Who are the people who get this disease? Three, what are the symptoms, like the clinical aspects of it? Four doesn't apply to us, but I usually study like diagnostic tests, but that doesn't really apply here. The next one would be treatments. And the fifth one would be called a differential diagnosis or other diseases that have similar presentations that you need to like rule out. So this is ultimately how we're going to explore the wandering womb today. And in the ancient world, the wandering womb is essentially the most common disease of women. So let's get into it. The pathophysiology. Why the heck does the womb even wandering? Like what is it doing outside of the pelvis? Well, according to Plato in the 400s BCE, so, so freaking long ago, he says, God's created the desire for sex by making the penis and the uterus animals of their own. Oh, spicy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So for the man, this meant that the penis had this inherent desire to rule, whatever that means. But for the womb, it meant that the womb was like an animal desiring childbirth, like designed to hold a child. Mm-hmm. And the womb did not like not getting what it desired. So what happens when a living creature like 
doesn't get what they want. It gets angry. Yeah, like if I don't get my food, I get hangry. Oh my god! (laughs) Stop the hanger. Too real. The hanger, like the womb is hangry. Doesn't have a child. So Plato thought, like, okay, the womb is hangry and is becoming like vengeful and it becomes angry towards the woman and it lashes out. So to do that, it moves around the body, bumping into things and causing problems. And to do this, Plato thought that the womb would move the channels of breath, which I can only assume means like the respiratory tract, such as your lungs, trachea, et cetera. And the womb would block passages of air, forbidding respiration and bringing the woman to extreme stress and suffering. And I will also point out that the penis, if it did not have a desire met, it didn't move around the body and cause all these issues. This is only a woman's problem here. Around the same time, Hippocrates, on the other hand, saw this problem as more of like a wet and dry or cold and warm issue. Do you remember this, Alicia? Your face says absolutely no. Well, you <laughs> you will in a second. You will in a second. Okay, just just jog my memory. Okay. There's there's been a lot of episodes. So in the ancient world, it was very common in medicine for diseases to be based on the four humors. Super common theory, like yellow bile, black bile, blood, phlegm, all these things. But specifically in women, there's this idea that women were inherently cold and men were inherently hot. And this theory, like I elaborate on so much more in episode 24, The Classical Woman. So I highly encourage you to listen to that episode if you want to learn more about this like hot and cold nonsense. But to be specific to the womb today, Hippocrates thought that that if the womb was not bearing a child or had not recently been warmed by the seed of a man, Mm. then it would be cold and dry. So he's like imagining like this childless womb. Oh, right. So it runs away to places that are warm and wet. Yes, or something yes. uh-huh. literally yeah he's over here like the womb is so sad and lonely and cold and these little blanket wrapped around it so it like runs away to the wet and the warm organs of the body <laughs> organs like the brain the bladder the lungs the liver just basically any other organ that's not the womb And these organs were considered wet and it would provide the womb warmth, the same warmth that childbearing would bring it, they thought. All right. There also was this dude named Herophilus of Chaldeans. He was also a Greek physician. And he was also one of the first anatomists at the time. This was all around the same time. And he was an anatomist who performed dissections on human cadavers. And I'll mention maybe some vivisections, which means dissecting Mm. alive people. This man, like I said, was one of the first anatomist. So he was one of the first people to study human anatomy. He did a lot for neuroanatomy, blah, blah, blah. But he also took a little peek at the reproductive organs when he was in there and went, hmm, very interesting in here. He noticed the uterus seemed to be attached to a bunch of stuff in the pelvis. And he's like, this doesn't really make sense with the wandering womb that we've been like talking about. (laughs) What do you think he was looking at, Alicia? Like all the ligaments and stuff that's like literally holding yeah. down the uterus. He was looking at the broad ligament. He was like, what yeah. is this giant thing over it? Now, the broad ligament is this like big piece of tissue basically that wraps itself all around the uterus, the fallopian tubes, the ovaries, the vessels of these organs, and more. 
basically you can imagine like the broad ligament is a tortilla and it wraps itself around the reproductive system like a burrito. And that's what he saw. And he was like, hmm, that's weird. And so physicians looked at this and they thought, well, crap, like what, how do we explain this wandering womb thing? Darn shucks, we've been thwarted. That doesn't make sense. But don't worry, they thought of a way to continue with their theory. They said, well, it's okay. The womb's attached stuff. The womb just has a more limited range of motion now. It can still move to the right, to the liver. It can still move to the left, to the spleen. And these ligaments act as a type of sail to guide the uterus around the body. (laughs) I did not. That was not what I thought you were going to. I thought you were going to say sling. I thought you were going to say the whole thing goes together (laughs) with the ligaments. I did not think that the uterus was going to be like wakeboarding around the body. Uterus out here sailing like it's Moana or something. Just like (laughs) going around the body. Yep, that was their explanation. They're like, oh, obviously the ligaments are just a sail. It helps guide the uterus around. Awabunga. And then there was Galen, who's about like 400 years later after all these people. And he was like, I don't actually think the womb is moving. So that's like, he's the first one that's like, I don't <laughs> like, actually wait. think it's moving. Yeah. Wait and a his, second. his like citation for this theory was, well, in pregnancy, the womb gets quite large and it's like pushing in a lot of parts of the body. Yet women who are pregnant don't experience these like typical wandering room diseases that we'll talk about in a bit. So he's like, I don't think the womb is what's the issue. He thinks it was like the retaining of female seed or menstrual fluid or like the lack of male seed, which brings us to who exactly is susceptible to a wandering womb. Who do you think, Alicia? Young women who don't have sex yet. There you go. You're on to something for sure. So many different like physicians, philosophers, since, you know, Plato's philosopher or whatever, um, have different ideas of who it can affect. But to put it simply, it's unmarried women, aka women who do not regularly have sex. So in Islamic tradition, it was thought to specifically be like virgins of marriageable age. But in Greek tradition, it was thought to... Um, be upon like diff- a couple different groups of women. One were women with a history of miscarriage or premature delivery. So like Aww. women with pregnancy complications. They also really thought it was like older women were susceptible to this and like widows. Classic blaming menopause. They believe that older women have lighter wombs, making it more susceptible for their womb to wander. Mm. Uh, and also they thought widows because these are women who had previously experienced having regular sex and no longer do. So they're more susceptible. So it's almost like the womb is like the animal and it was given a little treat and now we'll do anything. Do th- it's like to get its chance to have that treat again. Cause it already knows. Nom, what nom, it's nom, like. nom, 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 nom. However, I'll point out like all women were truly susceptible to this condition and were diagnosed with this. These are just groups that were more specifically pointed out, I guess. All right. So what even is like the diseases of the wandering womb? What do you think, Alicia? Well, so if the womb is going places, just classic anatomy. It's like if the womb is traveling all around, then it's probably affecting Mm -hmm. all the places that it's been traveling. So maybe Mm -hmm. if the womb goes to like the lung, 
maybe it causes pneumonia or like mm-hmm. maybe the womb. I mean, the, the uterus like sits by the bladder. You can get a fistula. That's a real thing, actually. But like maybe yeah. it causes so, that. Yeah. Am I basically so? Yeah. Kind of okay, cool. it. Some's a little weird, <laughs> but some makes sense. So if it came close to the bladder, <laughs> it was called strangulation, which I don't know what that would apply to, but it could cause issues. If it came close to muscles, it could cause like tendonitis. So that one makes a little oh. more sense. Yeah. I don't know how the uterus would get to a muscle, but whatever. If it went to like your upper abdomen, lungs area, it could cause like drowsiness, loss of voice, like not oh. being able to breathe, things like that. And then if it went to your liver or your head, it could cause foaming of the mouth, fainting, suffocation, a lot of things. That doesn't yeah. sound like the wandering womb. That sounds like a dog bit you, but okay. <laughs> but this liver and like going to liver into the brain is like kind of the key point. It was like what they were really worried about. So this going to these areas is what caused like the stereotypical disease that the wandering womb caused, which was called hysterica pnix or the uterine suffocation. And one Greek physician named Arterius of Copadacia described it as when she begins to suffer from the upward motion of the uterus, the signs are hesitation in doing tasks, fatigue, weakness of the knees, dizziness, weakness of the limbs, headache, heaviness of the head, which then she falls down, suffers from heartburn, chokes, has <laughs> intermittent or absent pulse, loses her speech or sensibility, and then suddenly dies. Oh, no. Yeah. So one, looking at this list of things that could happen. There's a lot of common things. Hesitation in doing tests. That just sounds like someone's being lazy one day. Fatigue, very common symptom. Weakness of the knees. Okay. Dizzy, pretty common. Headache, super common in women. Weakness of the limbs, could just be tired. Fainting's a little more questioning. Heartburn's pretty common. Choking, I'm imagining is kind of like shortness of breath. Maybe they got asthma. I don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. Intermittent or absent pulse. This person got like atrial fibrillation. I don't know. Loss of speech and sensibility and sudden death. So there's a lot of things going on. But this is all grouped together into this like uterine suffocation, hysterica, pnics. Um, And this is the main disease that they believe the wandering womb causes and that they treat. But like, how do they treat this condition? There's a lot of things going on. And it's all due to the womb just moving around. So like, if you were to guess what types of things they would do, what do you think they would do to sex prescriptions? Yes, for sure. That's Anything the only thing else? I can Any think of. Ideas? Getting pregnant. Okay, it's a, it's a solid one. It's like the most expected one. So the range of treatments that would be employed from this condition, I think, really reflect like how wide of a problem this one was considered to be. Um, because it highlights like how medicine was really practiced in the ancient world. That being that like both there were medical and also magical elements to these treatments. So it was like a Hmm. co-disciplinary treatment regimen kind of. And although like much of modern medicine can be tied back to Greek, Roman, Islamic, Egyptian roots, 
it doesn't mean that like physicians of the time are practicing healthcare as it does today. It was very accepted to have like magical cures along with medical ones. So, oh, definitely. Those people were cray cray. Yeah, they were all up in the magic. So we'll start with the magical remedies for a wandering womb. One, the, a really big one was amulets. Like these amulets that were worn mm. as jewelry uh, that women wore like all day. It was a huge thing. There were amulets that were discovered in Greece, in the Byzantine Empire, in Lebanon, in Egypt. It's kind of like all over the Mediterranean, there were these amulets. And the amulets would often bore, like, would often bear images of the uterus, either like what they just thought it looked like, or sometimes it would have like the broad ligament on it. And this was called the octopus uterus because it like had all these like ligaments coming off of it. And they thought like an octopus mm. with all of its legs. Or uh, they'd also call it the gorgon head uterus because it would like look like Medusa with all of her snakes on her head. They thought the uterus looked like yeah. that with all of its ligaments. So these would be on these amulets that women would wear. And the amulets often have like two different purposes. There'd be one preventative. And there's one preventative amulet that called upon the god Jawa, the god of the Jews, apparently. Um, to stop the uterus from ever removing in the first place. And then mm-hmm. there were other amulets that were curative. So they would harbor a command such as, stop womb, stop you there, sit still. Yeah, they were just, so that was like the curative type one, like stop womb, go back to where you're supposed to go. Go to your room. <laughs> um, and then... <laughs> There was also one amulet from Greece that had a gemstone hematite on it. The stone mm. supposed to have healing powers too. And in this amulet's kind of cool. So it was like it had the stone on it to help with healing. And then it was like a little capsule. And inside of it, there was a gold sheet that had been rolled up and put into it. And this gold sheet had a magical spell on it. And the spell said. Mm. I adjure you, womb of Ipsa, whom Ipsa bore, in order that you never abandon your place. In the name of the Lord God, the living, the unconquerable, remain in the spot of Ipsa, whom Ipsa bore. And I can't figure out who Ipsa is. It must be. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, who that? <laughs> well, the real Slim out. Shady, please stand <laughs> up. <laughs> Literally. Ipsa, please raise your hand. Um, yeah, I think it's the woman who held the amulet, but I could be totally wrong. If anyone knows, let us know because I could, my Google search failed me. Um, but yeah, I thought that was such a fun little spell that was in her amulet. It was like, stay where you're supposed to be. Don't move around, please, basically. And then they also found like this magical handbook in, um, they found it in Egypt, but it was like in Greek handbook which makes sense because there was a lot of trade around the attorney at that time and it had a mm-hmm. recipe for the ascent of the womb which just recipe sounds more like a spell to me but whatever it stated i adjure you womb once one established over the abyss before heaven sea earth light and darkness came to be who created the angels and who sits over the cherubim who bears his own throne return again to your seat do not lean into the right part of the ribs nor the left part of the ribs, nor take a bite into the heart like a dog, but stop and remain in your proper places without chewing as long as I adjure you 
by the one who's the beginning made heaven and earth and all therein. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. So, it's, it's saying, please don't move around the body with your sail. Please do not bite into these organs. Because in this like recipe, this practitioner is kind of referring to the wound as, as womb as it's like actually an animal. It's acting like it has ears because it's asking it to do things. It's asking it to not bite the organs, who obviously has a mouth. And so we should not be surprised that they also thought the womb had a sense of smell. What do you uh, think they did with like smell to keep the womb where it's supposed to be? Would be your guess. Did they put perfume in the vagina or something to keep it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they would do a lot of fumigation. Jesus. So they would try to lure the womb back into place with smells. And to do this, they put something like really good smelling below or within the vagina. Um, things like perfumes. And then they would put really awful, awful smelling things under the woman's nose to keep like the womb away from like going up. I know they would put, uh, they would put burnt hair, charred deer. Oh, it keeps going. Charred deer horns, burnt (sighs) wool, burnt flock, skin. Don't know where they got skin, rags, um, different like resins and squished bugs. To make sure the so, wound doesn't that's go that literally torture. I hate this. Them. Poor woman. This is also like fun fact how they would um, perform exorcisms at the time too to get demons out of the body. So there's a nice. there's a little parallel between medical treatment for women and possession. Interesting. Okay, but there are also like a ton of other methods of treatments. One, some midwives would like cause orgasms in women to help relieve their symptoms. Ooh, um, that's better. Yeah. Sometimes the physician would physically like push the uterus back into its place. So they would like push on the woman's abdomen as if they oh. were shoving the uterus down. And then they would take a, like a tight bandage and wrap it around the body really, really hard around the diaphragm, the abdomen to keep the uterus from coming back up. Oh, yeah. Sounds very sounds cool. awful. Yeah. Um. They would sometimes put a feather into the woman's nose so that she would sneeze the uterus back into place. Sometimes okay. they prescribe taking a cold bath. Don't know why. Cold bath would work. Mm. And then, of course, they would prescribe having sex, as you said, because that's how women get the disease. Ultimately, like their womb is barren and hungry for a child, and sex was believed to like moisten the womb, making it wet mm-hmm. and not prone to movement. Also, having a physical baby in the womb will literally hold that boy down. But in some, like, evidence for them that, like, pregnancy or having sex would cure women's diseases, that, like, some women would no longer have headaches once they got pregnant, which can be true, but not a reason to prescribe sex for (laughs) treatment of things. Mm. However, I did read that some Hippocratic Physicians recognized that pregnancy was very dangerous for women, which makes sense considering about one in 50 women died in childbirth in Rome. So they probably were like, this is not the most safe condition for a woman, which is why there are so many other treatments for this condition. All right. Yeah. Um, it's also very important, I think, to point out the majority of these providers for these women in these ancient times were male. 
mainly because if women were to be practicing medicine in these civilizations at this time, which did happen, it wasn't like women didn't practice, um, they'd mainly be like gynecologists. But yeah, you would think this would be a condition to fall under gynecologists because it's the womb. But when you think about it, the diseases that this would cause, like fainting, headaches, like sudden death, pulse issues, like those are not yeah, those are those not reproductive issues. issues. Yeah. Yes. So it'd be more like general practitioners, which related to modern terms, who are most commonly men. So a lot of male ideas going into this idea of the womb. So at this point, we've covered pretty much what the disease is. But say a woman presents with these symptoms of hysterica pinks due to the wandering womb. Who's to say it's not another disease? So what would be our differential diagnoses? So Alicia, what, what diseases, now I'm talking modern day diseases now, do you think would relate to the wandering womb? Okay, so I actually had a thought about this before and I wrote it down as one of the thoughts I was going to share, but this is very <laughs> appropriate. My thought when you were saying that there's like stuff that goes to the liver and the brain. So there is a cancer, often cancer is like travel to the liver and brain. But like specifically, mm-hmm. like colon cancer goes to the liver and brain a lot. So I was like, mm-hmm. are all these women, do they all just have colon cancer? Like maybe. Anyway, Ooh. so I thought about that, but clearly that's, that's not what you were trying to get at. I didn't have that, but I like that. That's a cool point of view to take. Thanks for letting me down easy. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they just have like other problems. Like maybe they just are sick. Yeah, Maybe they're just regular people. Like, I don't want to do work most of the day. True. Exactly what I'm saying. Don't want to get up fatigued. Very common. For one, they, it sounds a lot like epilepsy. So a lot of medical historians actually thought this condition was um, women having grand mal seizures because women would fall down. They'd be foaming at the mouth. They would seem like they're choking. So it sounds a lot like epilepsy. I guess it does. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, fine. I guess <laughs> you want to put it that way. I like so, my colon cancer the, theory. I like that's way more out of the box and I really appreciate, appreciate it. So yeah, they would often think that it was epilepsy and sort of like shoot forward a thousand or so years. There's a French neurologist, Jean-Martin Charcot. He's Charcuterie? Like, got it. He's got a lot of diseases named after him. Um, oh, Charco, like Charco's triad. Yeah, like the like liver the, guy. What's that one disease with no? What's that one disease with like the foot in neurology? Charco Marie um, Tooth. Oh my god! My Apple Watch just looked up Sharky Marie Tooth disease. <laughs> Sharky Sharky Marie Tooth. <laughs> okay, guys. My Apple Watch told me it's known as a hereditary motor and sensory neuropathy. One of the most common inherited neurological blah, blah, blah. Well, thank you, Apple Watch. That wasn't what I needed right now, but okay. Anyway, he's from the 1880s and he coined the term hysteroepilepsy, a condition that he literally thought resulted from the wandering womb. So he basically made a direct like connection, wandering womb equal epilepsy. This Mm. idea didn't last long that the wandering womb like existed, but the like concept of the idea was taken up by Freud who even like, oh, like I said, he didn't think the wandering womb existed, but he thought that seizures and these symptoms women would have were psychologically induced because of sexual repression. 
Classic. Typical, typical Freud. Um, over time, these seizures also became known as like hysterical seizures, pseudo seizures, non-epileptic seizures, conversion seizures, dissociative seizures, and stress-induced yeah. seizures. Yeah. So seizures is one category of a differential diagnosis for us. Another diagnosis that is often attributed to like the wandering womb, or at least the effects of the wandering womb's history has had on medicine today is endometriosis. Oh. Why do you think endometriosis would be related to this? If we're talking now about like wandering wombs, psychologically induced things. Cause endometriosis is like the dis- the deposition of uterine or endometrial tissue outside of the uterus. So it like literally is traveling uterus tissue. Yes. So one, I was writing that and I thought that to myself, I didn't read it anywhere as that, but I love that. I also made that connection that like endometriosis is quite literally the womb being in the body where it should not be. So in a way, endometriosis is is the wandering womb. If we want to tie it together like that, but also at a baseline, endometriosis is like an extremely hard disease to diagnose. Many women go to multiple, multiple doctors and take many, many years to be diagnosed. And this is largely due to one, to technically diagnosis, so you have to go through surgery, but it's also due to honestly, doctors not really truly hearing patients. They hear yeah. patients tell them that they're in this extreme pain, and patients or in physicians think that it's all in their head, that these women are having these like psychological, somatic, hysterical sim- like symptoms yeah. and reactions. Classic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's I read this like whole article that talked about how these ideas of the wandering womb and like how the way the ideas have developed over time to become like this psychological, hysterical way women react to their body has resulted in diseases such as endometriosis being underdiagnosed because women aren't taken seriously. They just think like, oh, whatever, you're just having a hard time with your period. It's not anything more than that. In reality, this is a very serious disease that many women have. And then lastly, my other differential would be um, premenstrual syndrome, PMS, or its severe form, which is listed as a psychological disorder, which I think just plays into this whole thing, Um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. That's the one actually. Yeah. The DSM-5. Yeah. And it's interesting because like both PMS and PMDD are both like attributed to the menstrual cycle and the symptoms that women have around the menstrual cycle. And whether it's like completely true or not that these are like syndromes women have because of the menstrual cycle or if it's because of something else, it's hard to say. There was one article I was reading from the Atlantic that was talking about this study the University of Toronto did where they did this like meta-analysis basically of all the research done in the English language that reported on moods in the menstrual cycle. And in the study, they found that 36.6% 36.6% of studies found absolutely no association between mood and menstrual cycle. Um, 41% found an association between negative mood and the premenstrual cycle. And they kind of concluded that there wasn't like a clear enough results to say like, for sure, the menstrual cycle is causing all of these mood symptoms that are a part of PMS or depressive symptoms that are part of like PMDD, things like that. So in a way, PMS can become a cop-out, much like the wandering womb, saying that women's symptoms are just due to their uterus. And it may be true, but also may not be true. But like on the chance that it isn't true, don't women deserve to have a further investigation 
outside of her reproductive system so that she is like accurately and fully treated for whatever condition is causing this like issue in her health. Cause that right. isn't that like what any person deserves when they walk into a doctor's office or is a woman just boiled down to her uterus, both in ancient society as much as today. And that is me presenting the wandering womb to you. Womb! <laughs> the womb! It's like in, uh, what's it called? The stick will me where he's like, the moon. It's like the, the womb. <laughs> yes. All right. Let's go on to talk about all this. It was a fun one. I like miss doing these longer episodes. So I had a few thoughts. One that like kind of stuck with me that I wrote down is like early when you were talking about how the uterus was like this hangry, angry kind of entity that um, doesn't have a child. And so it turns into this vengeful. I liked the use of that Hmm. word like vengeful because I think that's often a way people describe like females in whatever form that looks like is just like jealous or vengeful or evil. Mm-hmm. And it's like the uterus, instead of looking at the uterus as this thing that's like searching for something that's like it has lost, it's like angry. So it's like going on a rampage. Yeah. I thought that was mm-hmm. one interesting thought. The other was the thought that I thought was like extremely, you know, unique was my colon cancer thought. Um, it is unique. I, I thought it was very good. And so I wrote it down brain plus, thank you. I wrote down brain plus liver <laughs> equals colon cancer. You think you were like, just on like GI surgery? Maybe You would think that I was on colorectal surgery. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I know. But truly like, it makes a lot of sense because your gut like goes all the blood from your gut goes into your liver and then that goes up to your heart and your brain. So like the two places that colon cancer hit first are the liver and brain. But I understand too that like these symptoms are not liver and brain specific. They are non-specific symptoms yeah. and that's the whole point. I don't see why is that- they couldn't be called like colorectal cancer though. That's yeah. But I think I liked thinking through a differential for this disease or like if you want to call it a syndrome or disease, I think it's like really interesting looking at this wandering womb concept and how it translates into diseases today and how the same question lives on of like, is this even a disease? And that's still- persists it's just a different form it looks different now and so we can laugh all we want and think oh haha the wandering womb like how silly is that but like maybe Mm -hmm. 400 years from now people will look back and be like oh my gosh like pre-menstrual syndrome that sounds like a made-up thing and it's not always made up but like in some ways it feels like it is and so I think that is like an interesting juxtaposition to make Yeah, I agree. I think that's my favorite part about The Wandering Womb is like, it's a really fun story. Like looking back at ancient history, in my opinion, I think your opinion too, can be really fun and like to look at all these things. But then when you look at it more critically and like in in with the lens of today, you're like, wow, like these things that happened in the past, obviously like 
influence how things happen in the future. And now when you look at it today, you're like, like I said about everything about the differentials and like endometriosis being underdiagnosed and PMS, like it applies today still. Um, and I just love that about this story. Okay. So yeah. like I mentioned, the wandering womb affects women, basically all ages. Cause the main focus is women who don't have sex equal disease. And when you look at history, you can really see like these patriarchal pressures fueling this theory. However, some people have theorized that like women probably did have very visceral, like stress induced symptoms in these societies that were muted or would go away once they were married by just being relieved to be married because the societal pressure to be married was so strong at that time that like it's possible women did have some symptoms here and there. So Alicia, what are your opinions on like, is there still such a social pressure to be married or in a relationship for like in general today, whether it's like women or anyone or women in medicine, like what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think at a very basic level, there is still a societal pressure to be married. And I don't even mean just like in a relationship or having a partner. It's like, no, the pressure is to be married. Like whether that means on Mm -hmm. paper, whether that means religiously, like that definitely still exists. And perhaps that's in the lens of the world that I live in. But even I would say that like, we're from a pretty like liberal, you know, I want to say like progressive kind of community. And Mm -hmm. I still think that there is undertones of pressure to like beat your biological clock, get married, have kids, like do everything in this very like by the book, quote unquote, kind of way. And so I can't Mm -hmm. even imagine what that feels like or looks like in other communities and other societies in this country and a hundred percent around the world. Like, I think we're looking at Mm -hmm. it from a very narrow perspective, but like Mm -hmm. objectively, not much has changed. Maybe we're not like marrying off our kids at like 12 here, but that's definitely Mm -hmm. that statement doesn't apply to other countries and other societies. And it also Mm -hmm. is like not always true. Like it still happens. And I think just because we're not doing that, which seems so drastic does not mean there's not pressure. And I think that pressure for like women or like folks to just get married it's like overlaid on top of the idea of like you have a biological clock that is ticking and if you wait Mm -hmm. too long then like you'll be you know infertile and run into all these issues and so I think people use that as like a crutch of being like oh, if you wait too long, you won't be able to have kids. So you need to start your life early. And by start your life, they mean like get married so you can have kids. Yeah. Like you don't already live a life before a relationship. No, I agree. I think the, the idea that there was a social pressure in these ancient times to get married and it would cause like the stress symptoms or like the, um, treatment for like the wandering womb would be to get married is exact. It's like still so real today. Like people often, often say like, oh, that person just needs to get a boyfriend or they just like need to like have sex or something. And they'll be like happier or calmer, or they won't be so depressed. And those, yeah. are, those are not true treatments for real conditions that people have and real experiences people have. Yeah. You can't treat someone with another human, you know? And I think that's such like a problem 
that women experience, like men, probably anyone experience today is like just saying, well, maybe if you were with someone else, or you weren't doing things so independently or blah, 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 then you would be this or feel this way. Um, and it's very common definitely thing. know a guy who's like this. I'm literally like when you're not, when you're single, you are mean, you're cranky, <laughs> you're moody and sad. And like mm-hmm. suddenly he's like a serial monogamous too. So when he's with someone, he's like still like moody and like all these things, but like moody, happy, like he's like, yeah, you know, a little but more also like, pleasant. Right. But for him, he probably know that about himself. So that's like his own decision. But for someone to say to someone like you just need this person or to have sex to be a better person or version of yourself, then that's just not like a fair thing to say to someone, I think. And then I have, I agree that like the social pressure of like being married and being in a relationship and throughout the world is still extremely high dependent on the society you're in. And even in today's society, like, or in like the United States society, um, cause the social clock is something that comes up all the time, especially if you're a woman in medicine or a woman in whatever job, honestly, if you're like, have this big career that takes up a lot of your time, people will a thousand percent ask you, when will you get married? When will you have kids? Blah, 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 blah. Like it's like the biggest part of your life or something. Yeah. So. No, the biological clock is real and it. And it's really, it also, you know, puts a lot of pressure on the relationships that you're in as you age, because like, if you're single Mm -hmm. or you're with someone, like the question always is like, are you going to end up with that person? Or like, why aren't you with Mm -hmm. anyone? And the next person you're going to be with, is that going to be your person? And, and so there's like all these questions that come up when it's like, okay, well, I didn't start dating at 14. Like I, you know, I haven't been just like dating to date. And it's, it's that question of like, okay, well now Mm -hmm. there's like pressure to make the next person or that person, this like long-term partner. The one. Yeah. 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 Yeah, For sure. Which takes away the experience from all people involved to have so much pressure going into something instead of just like enjoying your life because life does not begin once you are in a relationship, you have your own life as a single human individual being, whether you're with someone or not. All yeah. right. And then to finish off this episode, I want to talk about like my last statement of the main chunk of the episode of that, like our women just boil down to their uterus as much in ancient society as today. And this really makes me think of everything that's been happening with abortion rights in the United States um, now in 2022. So Alicia, I just want to hear your thoughts on how the story can relate to what's happening today. Yeah. I mean, what's going on today is abhorrent as we all know, um, or at least as we believe you and I, and many others. And I think Mm -hmm. something that you said stuck with me because you were saying like, okay, are we, you know, boiled down to just our uteruses. And I think based off of the ruling of the Supreme court, we're like not even worth our uteruses. And then the thought that I had relating to this is, you know, the concept of our bodies and our uteruses, like craving children. And like, that's the idea of the wandering, wandering room is like to be full and to be like secure. But Mm -hmm. that all hinges on the idea that like pregnancy is good for you. And that's what the wandering room like believes. But that is not always the case. In fact, 
Most of the time, it's not the case. And I'm saying is as someone who loves pregnancy, who's been fascinated by pregnancy since she was literally a child, like pregnancy is like the ultimate stress test on the body. It has killed mm-hmm. people who have carried children for millennia. So mm-hmm. it's not this like healthy thing. And there's like cuckoos out there who like think that, you know, oh, the fetus and the mom share blood and it's this beautiful experience and it's healing and like all this crap that like from a very unidimensional, healthy, childbearing, like person who has a uterus, who can carry a child, like from their perspective, yeah, like pregnancy may seem like this, you know, rosy and pink and flowery experience. And I don't Mm want to take that away from them. But those people shouldn't be putting on others this idea that it's like easy to have kids or that Mm -hmm. it's not a stressor on the body or that you don't have long term consequences. And that's the inherent idea of the wandering womb that is like so Mm -hmm. wrong among many other things. But that's the through line that kind of stuck with me into now is like Mm -hmm. we don't have bodily autonomy in our country. Like we can't have abortions. So like what? Mm if we are best made to have children, pregnancy would maybe be less dangerous, but that's like not the reality. I agree. Pregnancy, I think thus far in my medical school journey is the most terrifying thing that can happen to a person, which people, I tell people that who aren't in medicine, they laugh at me. They're like, what? I'm like, but I swear to God, it is the things that can happen to a woman while she is pregnant is terrifying the complications, let alone just like how quick your body changes and the way that you experience it is just like baseline, like nerve wracking and scary. So it's not a beautiful thing. And I completely agree. And then what I wanted to say about this is that yes, the abortion ruling has resulted in like a complete lack of bodily autonomy. And I think this is like the perfect betrayal of the wandering womb, because if you have a wandering womb, then you are in zero control of your uterus. You have like mm. no control over it. It is doing whatever it wants in your body. And that is quite literally how women in the United States and at least 50% states, they will not have abortions anymore, will experience. They will have no mm-hmm. control over their womb. Their womb is no longer part of them that they possess. It is a wandering womb. It is doing whatever it wants and you, have, you can do nothing to stop it. And I think- yeah this idea that the woman can do whatever it wants and it's like separate than the woman in a way is exactly how I feel about like forced pregnancies basically. Yeah. Which is what many, many, many millions of women will experience going forward in the foreseeable future. So yeah, I think those are all good way of putting it. An extremely important thing to bring up. We will continue talking about abortion rights and what's happening in the United States throughout this season. So watch out for that. But other than that, thank you all for listening to this episode. It was so fun to get back into like ancient history. We're really trying to like get back to um, ancient history roots a little bit more in the next couple yeah. episodes. So if there are any like particular topics you really love or have seen, um, let us know and we would love to talk about them. So go ahead and subscribe to our podcast, whatever podcasting app you like, and also leave us a rating and review if you have a moment. Apple Podcasts is the best place for a review and ratings. You can also do on Spotify. Yep. And you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, 
et cetera. And you should check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, merch, and all that good stuff. And that's from scrubs.com. And lastly, here's to the women and the uteruses who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.